0: Hello, I'm Matt Baum, and welcome to The Sewers of Paris. We're on a podcast search for the entertainment that changed the lives of queer people. On tonight's episode, 90s Alt-Rock, The Wizard of Oz, and Pixar Films versus Pixar Reality. This week, I'm talking to Mayor John Bowders. Yes, that's right, the actual mayor of Emeryville, which are the words on the sash that was made for him by Pixar Studios, just one of the constituencies in his East Bay town. John never planned to become an elected official, and he doesn't care if people vote him out, which is maybe what makes him such an unusual leader. We'll have that conversation in a minute. First, a reminder that I've got a book coming out next year about queer sitcoms. It's called Hi Honey, I'm Homo, and pre-orders are now open. Head over to GaySitcoms.com to get the details. And a big thanks to everybody who supports The Sewers of Paris on Patreon. Patrons get hours of exclusive bonus videos about pop culture history, stickers and stuff in the mail, and shout-outs in YouTube videos. And speaking of YouTube videos, check out my videos about pop culture history. That's at YouTube.com slash Matt Baum. Now, here's my conversation with John. Well, this week I'm speaking with John Bowders. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, what is the entertainment that changed your life? TV. Okay. Well, let's dig in. Uh, <laughs> what are some of the earliest shows that uh, that you remember being like? you're I got to see this. I can't miss this. Kind
1: of no, shows. actually, TV changed my life because I don't watch it. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> then let's go the other direction. Like, how was t- like? It's such a like indelible part of, of most people's childhood. Yeah. Can you give me some context for like why that just it just wasn't there for you?
1: Uh, my parents didn't actually allow us to watch TV very often, uh, almost mm-hmm. never. We had about an hour of TV as a family once a week. It was usually the Cosby Show or Night Rider, depending on who got to pick the TV show that week. Uh, usually on Friday night after dinner, um, and that was pretty much it. There was very little to no TV access, and so I grew up without it. And to be honest with you, uh, I don't. I still don't watch it to this day. I don't have any time or use for TV, so it makes me a bad gay because there's lots of uh, folks who you know are like. You can't tell me you've never seen The Golden Girls, or you can't tell me you've never seen this or that on TV. And I'm like very honestly, like I, have, I have not. I do mm-hmm. not, uh, do not watch TV. And so it changed my life in the sense that I do a lot of other things with my time. That a lot of people I know come home and they unplug and turn on the TV, and I tend to do other things with my time. So uh, to answer your question honestly, the thing that changed my life is TV because I'm uh, terrible at uh, the pop culture section of uh, trivia at the bar night trivia. Um, I can never get the pink pie on the trivia pursuit. So I always lose because I don't know who any of the TV actors or TV shows are. But um, TV is probably the one category where I have little to nothing to contribute to a conversation.
0: Were you like as a kid aware that that was um, I don't know that there was there was like this kind of like blind spot as an adult that, that was that was being created or, or like were you, were you like the other kids, the other kids can watch TV. Like, did you compare your, your TV habits or lack thereof to, to other folks?
1: Um, you know, I, I, I've i thought about that, actually. I don't know how often I consciously thought about it. I think I would go to friends' houses at times, and we would get to watch TV, and I would see something on a given you know visit to a friend's house, and I'd come home and I'd asked about watching it, and my mom would be like, you don't need to watch that. And I don't really think I ever pushed back on it. It just wasn't a thing. We were encouraged to be outdoors and, and to go outside and do things. And, so, and I really loved being outdoors, so for me, uh, it didn't really crossed my mind all that much. But when I did get to college, it did, um, <clears throat> it did affect some of my social skills. Uh, Cause the other thing that came with it was we weren't allowed to play video games. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did not play video games in college with most of the other college guys who played it. I didn't want to sit around and watch TV. Um, I did learn how to watch friends. That's probably the one TV show I learned in the nineties in college, how to watch. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. It kind what does of it mean up. to
0: like, to learn how to watch? Like wh- what was that experience?
1: Just it's weird to to sit still that long. Mm -hmm. I just find that weird. Yeah, people always say I'm extremely high energy. They ask how I get so much done in a day. And I think to myself sometimes probably because I don't watch TV. That's honestly how I I think I probably get as much as I do done. But I fill my time with other things. I like being outside. Um, I I, I meet more people um, out for coffee or a beer or take my dog for a walk. So TV is just probably of all the mediums of – media and entertainment is probably the one area where I've just never had any real interest. I'll watch the occasional hockey game. That's about it.
0: Can you describe, you said that you were outdoorsy and like, that's what your parents were encouraging. Um, what was the sort of the, what was the setting? Like, where were you growing up and, and what was outdoors for you?
1: Yeah, I grew up, uh, I grew up in Michigan in the Midwest and outdoors for me, uh, my bicycle was kind of my freedom. So I could go pretty much anywhere anywhere that I could get back home in 15 minutes from. And so Mm -hmm. I was really encouraged to kind of explore my neighborhood, my community. I used to take it to the ravine. I would catch frogs. I would go fishing. I kind of just went everywhere. My parents' only rule was when the streetlights come on, you have 15 minutes to be home. Mm -hmm. And so I would leave the house after school and I would be gone until dinner time usually. And I spent that time seeing friends, going places, visiting, you know, everything from the library to the playground to wherever. And that was my social stimulation. My my friends and most of my experiences were kind of built around that. And I don't think my parents had any interest in having us indoors all evening. So it worked out for me. I carry that to this day. I, I live a car-free existence. I bicycle and walk everywhere. I enjoy going to the water and to the forest and to the park. And I see my friends everywhere outside. So it's kind of just been my lifestyle habit. I don't think there's a, a good or a bad. I think people grow up culturally differently. And in our case, it wasn't like thrust upon us. It was just kind of like, you don't need that. And I don't think I ever really questioned it, but it's definitely become my lifestyle.
0: Now, I know like just in our chatting uh, before we started recording, you had uh, an experience with the Wizard of Oz as a kid that that stuck with you, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Don't, all, don't all gay people have an experience with the Wizard of Oz? <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, that yeah, my uh, experience, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say it just feels like that's a rite of passage or something. But yeah, uh, the first movie I was exposed to, I was like seven or eight years old. And the first movie that I was shown was The Wizard of Oz. And uh, here's, this, here's this young gentle boy who loves to be outdoors, loves animals, loves nature. And um, watching a depiction on a, a movie of Elmira Gulch coming in, nasty lady, and she snatches Toto from Dorothy. And mind you, I like love dogs more than almost anything. And she snatches Toto and she puts him in the basket and she starts to bicycle off of all things with this dog. And Dorothy is just terrified and she's in tears and she runs to her bed. And I had like a panic attack. Mm -hmm. I had this huge panic attack for Dorothy. Like in a a half moment, I I was completely gripped with fear um, for her and for the dog. And I was just mortified and I was and I think my parents quickly recognized that like I was emotionally overtaken by this. And then about a minute later into the film, the dog jumps out of the basket from the back of the bicycle and runs home to Dorothy and leaps through the window into her arms. And she's just overcome with joy. And I had this huge amount of relief. And I was so proud of Toto. And I remember being, being like, what a great dog that dog is. Um, and... But then being terrified the rest of the film, being very angry at that character for the rest of the film. (laughs) And um, it really, uh, I think when you're not maybe accustomed to TVs and movie, TV and movies all the time, like watching all the time, especially as a child, they actually can have a pretty profound (laughs) impact on you. I think my parents learned, they're like, maybe we need to, we need to, you know, give him a little more access to some of these things because it really, it really did throw me for a loop when I watched it
0: yeah well you know I had a sort of a similar experience, like t v was not allowed in my house before you know hmm. the, the evening, like you couldn't watch t v during the day and you know, very limited at night and very few um films and so like I definitely even as an adult, like even today, literally was just watching a Game of Thrones thing yesterday and it got a little violent, and I was like, nope, can't look, got to put my face behind my partner's back, so i like I wasn't watching the violence up because it like similarly. I don't know. On those rare occasions, as a kid, when I did see something on screen, I had not developed the "it's only a movie" sort of uh, instinct that I think a lot of other, uh, more um, media—I don't know—saturated kids do. I think that's. I think there's some truth to that. I definitely feel the same way. Did you have like you mentioned? Uh, there was that, and then watching Friends uh, with Friends, I guess, in college. Um, were there things that you're like these? These are the few touchstones that I have. Like that, that became. I don't know, a point of conversation between you and other people your age?
1: Yeah, there were there were a few. Uh, in terms of shows that I have watched in in some capacity or another over the years, it's been super erratic, but it was definitely Friends and Party of Five in college. Mm-hmm. There were a group of friends I had from a neighboring dorm, um, and we like to get together once a week and have dinner in their dorm basement, and the, the girls in that dorm really liked Party of Five. So as much as I couldn't have cared less about Owen and all the – characters in this show. I subjected myself to that show for the sake of friendship. So um, <clears throat> I would say there were those. During COVID, uh, I actually got Netflix because I couldn't go outside as much as I liked. Um, I got Netflix and I actually watched uh, Schitt's Creek, which I thought was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I did I did uh, give myself a good dose of that. And I, um, I watched, and of course, I'm going to forget the name of it. It's either called the queen or something, the queen, um, kind of the chronicling of queen Elizabeth's life. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, I really like, uh, historical or documentary, Mm -hmm. um, forms of media. So that was an extremely interesting series for me, but yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot of other touchstones. I remember when I was in the AmeriCorps program and I was in a shared housing situation, my roommates would watch American Idol. This was twenty years ago when American Idol first began, and I remember watching the first season of American Idol because there was so much house discussion about American Idol. And I just, after like the third or fourth episode, it had gotten so complex at the community dining table. I was like, okay, I'm going to watch it tonight because I just can't stand not knowing who any of these people are or why certain people in my house liked and disliked everybody. So I have, out of mostly out of curiosity, watched TV here or there, but I. I haven't turned the TV on, honestly, in probably nine or 10 months now.
0: Were there uh, books and um, music? Was was that a, a part of your life?
1: Yeah, music and books were absolutely a part of my life. Um, grow, growing up, m- most of the music in our house was, uh, was 60s and soul music. It was just what my parents liked. And so mm. uh, I probably, for my age bracket, know way more songs from the 60s and 70s than most people in my age bracket do. Uh, But I definitely developed my own taste as a high schooler and a college student in the nineties for nineties bands, big fan of Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Green Day, um, probably classic nineties bands for most people. Mm -hmm. Um, But also the definitely have a a sweet spot for Britney Spears. Love Britney Spears. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have definitely taken to Lady Gaga. So have all the relevant queer elements as well, I think. Um, But I don't follow some of the new newer bands or newer music I really think Lizzo is like she's the shit um really love Lizzo but I, I don't follow new musicians probably the same way I did when I was in college
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it it um, made my heart do kind of a somersault when you described all those bands as classic that I'm like, oh, yeah, like modern. And I'm like, no, that's actually that was oh. that was my teenage and 20 something music as well. Like what was called then alternative, I guess, I guess now classic yep. alternative. Yep,
1: yep, yep. <laughs> classic <old. Yep>. Yeah,
0: yeah. Classic. Yeah. Did you go to like live shows? Was, was that something that, that you did?
1: Yeah, I would go to concerts. Um, actually, the very first concert I went to was a Nine Inch Nails concert and Perfect Circle opened for them. Uh, and I came home with like 45 cuts in my arms and, and oh my gosh. shoulders from a match pit. Uh, so not, not on brand for me, but I definitely, they were, they were um, at the Van Andel Arena in Grand Rapids. And I, I went to a Nine Inch Nails concert. Um, I would go see Counting Crows, Dave Matthews Band, kind of your mainstays for that era, for our generation of, of music, whenever they'd come to town or mm-hmm. uh, be nearby, definitely go see them. Always an outdoor venue if I could, have, if I could get one didn't really love um didn't really love inside arenas uh you two i saw U two right after 9 11 they came mm-hmm. to they came to south bend indiana and i had tickets i saw them right after 9 11 i've seen madonna a number of times i've been very mad at ex-boyfriends of mine who got tickets to madonna but did not buy me tickets that's a quick way quick, oh, oh way, to, quick way to lose me as your boyfriend <laughs> so, i was like oh they're like oh, i'm going to madonna i got a ticket i go oh i'm going too. they're like Oh no! I could only get one. I'm like, okay, well, we're now experts. So, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. No, I, I definitely love. I definitely love music. I have a pretty wide range of music. I mean, if you were to go through my my iTunes, like, I like folk music. Um, I really like, you know, some of the old '60s music. I definitely have some diva music on here. I, you know, I, I like TLC. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm kind of all over the place. It would be really hard to, to like put me in a niche with music. I just think talented people performing is, is, is great. I've always said that someday I'll get married to um, a man who can sing and play an instrument because I have, I'm definitely the type of person who gets wooed by the, you know, the mythical sirens from the, from the ocean deep. I, Mm -hmm. Lo- totally fall head over heels for a guy who can sing or play an instrument and love it.
0: Did you have, when you were going to like um, concerts, was there like a community of uh, other fans of whatever the kind of music was that you were there for? Like, were there people who like bonded around those shows?
1: Um, I think we, yeah, I think there was. I think that sometimes it's just bonding around the experience. There were definitely people like when I, the friends I went to the Nine Inch Nails concert with, they were way more into Nine Inch Nails than I was. It was a little hard uh hard on on the music taste for me they'd have also gone to like a Marilyn manson concert and i would have had zero interest but i would have gone for the the sake of the friendship and the interest in the music just generally um but i do think there were communities of people who you know organize around or or have fraternity around music for sure uh especially u2 was one of them there's definitely like when you meet other u2 fans like yeah you you can talk forever about what your favorite song, what your favorite album is. And even if you didn't know the person before you got to the concert, have a great time with them.
0: Mm. You, I asked because I had an experience growing up in Connecticut, um, our like the kind of alt music place was called toads. And there was definitely like a crowd of us who knew each other through two skinny Jays and less than Jake. And, um, yeah. uh, gosh, mighty, mighty Boston's would have been going on around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh that was sort of for a period that was kind of how me and, and I think a lot of folks in my circle were sort of developing our not not exactly our taste or identity, but like i don't know that just is sort of what informed how we dress and what our sort of values were because I knew two skinny jays for me they like they would talk about um like gay stuff. And that was one of my first experiences being like, Oh, okay, cool. Here's somebody who's famous and and okay with gay stuff.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I definitely think that existed. I don't know that that was a huge component of my experience, but I definitely know what you're referring to there. There would be live, live music nights, you know, at certain venues near, you know, you near the university or whatnot. And there were definitely people who went regardless of who was performing or who would know people who were up and coming, who weren't, main, main stage names of some kind who are like, Oh, I had this person performed in Fort Wayne last week. And I'm like, how the fuck would you know that? So, <laughs> but they, they would, they would know that. And, and there was like a fraternity around that. I was not somebody who, um, followed that kind of up and coming or, um, the, the new, new music, um, performer, um, hierarchy probably as well as other people did. Uh, but I definitely enjoyed being present. I had a very inconsistent presence at things like that. Mm-hmm. I
0: you know, something else that I hear from a lot of folks um, on the show is that media is what you know, what, whatever it winds up being for them, gives them sort of a sense of like the gay community that's out there, the kinds of like the options that are presented to them. And I'm curious, like, what it was for you. Like, I'm sure there weren't, um, you know, just not watching a lot of TV until you, you got to college. I guess Party of, Party of Five did have a gay character, right? Was there? Yeah, there was. Yeah.
1: There was. There was a gay character um, in the show. There was. This was the same – this was the era where like Will and Grace,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right, was like kind of the mainstay of, you know, there's, oh my gosh, two openly gay guys. And it was funny because you being, being out in the 90s, most people, especially in the Midwest, were really derisive of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't exactly really welcoming. But the, usually like the, the handful of wonderful young female college colleagues who were super open-minded and accepting would immediately label you Will or Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was super annoying that there were so few uh, examples of LGBT people in, you know, in whether in cast or character that that it was kind of like we were, <laughs> we were all like put in the box like, well, he's definitely he's definitely a will. And mm-hmm. I was like, there's we, there's a lot more shades of color to us. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't I don't think I ever took my cues from any of the characters I saw, I always found it interesting and I paid more attention for sure to media that highlighted or accentuated or talked openly about LGBT characters or um, performers for that matter. But I also felt at times like some of them uh, really challenged my identity, my own identity. So like, I think of like Eddie Izzard Hmm. Um, and like Eddie, Eddie is a performer in a lot of ways uh, more on the comedian side. And I've gone to see Eddie perform and like, I got real mixed feelings, right? Like just real mixed feelings about Eddie. I think at an earlier time in my life when there was far fewer kind of like public facing figures like that, I, I disliked it to a degree. And I, I, I wish that wasn't the case, um, in, in retrospect, but I think it was because it was like, Oh, are you, <laughs> A will or a Jack. It was like there was like a handful of choices, right? And to have some of these choices be kind of for people to identify you or like, as, you know, to try to like relate to you, especially straight people, you know, trying to relate to gay people. It's like, oh, well, you know, I, you know, I, I have a gay friend now, right? Like I remember, mm-hmm. you know, even with my own family, my family is like, well, what kind of gay person are you? I was like, mm-hmm. what is that? What does that even fucking mean? Like, you know, what? I mean, I'm a gay person who likes to kiss other boys. How about that? So just, I think, I think that there were, um, there were different ways in which LGBT um, lifestyles, uh, LGBT personalities, LGBT culture have been displayed or um, shared with the public at large. And I think that the movement needed to begin somewhere. And so the fact that I think the 90s was really a turning point for that kind of discussion. Cause there's definitely examples of gay or at least like questionably gay characters prior to that, but none of not kind of the pronouncement as there was when you have a full sitcom about two gay characters kind of. So I think that there, that was a time when a lot of people were trying to identify and be supportive or relate to it. And it just made relating to it had to fit into like, there was only a handful of boxes on the form, Mm -hmm. if you will.
0: Yeah. You know, similarly you can kind of like, date somebody by their experience of coming out and being asked, are you will or Jack versus are you cam or Mitch from modern family? Like that was the, Mm -hmm. after Will Mm -hmm. and Grace, that was the one that took over that. Um, so yeah, exactly. exactly. And they're, they're, these are all very like, um, privileged people. They're white, usually, um, upper class, or they have money. They're comfortable. Uh, and it really does not, um, give a mainstream audience the full spectrum of of options and also to somebody who's like figuring themselves out, you know, I, I there's, there's sort of this question of like, was well, that, is that it? Is it, do I have to pick one of those?
1: Right, exactly. And that's, I think that's what I'm speaking to is that at a time of coming out and being asked by other people to explain myself or identify myself, right. And, and not really knowing how to do that or not being comfortable at times doing that early on, mm-hmm. it, it, it did feel like, well, I have to find some way to articulate this. And sometimes people trying to help you get that answer would offer. So are you the will or the Jack? And it was just like, well, what does that even mean? Like, you know, cause I'm, I'm both of them and neither of them at the same time. So that I think, and I think you're exactly right. There's so, for so long, there was almost no female representation and for certain very little to no representation of minorities, of people of color. And so they have dynamic, you know, cultural representation in within the LGBT community. And one of the big challenges within our community is long standing racism towards black and brown queer people. And I think that that played itself out through the privilege of, you know, mass media and TV and movies that always chose to depict the happy white gay male couple, you know, like, like you mentioned, just. Be, being the kind of stereotypical or archetypical um, perspective of what a gay relationship is, or who's in a gay relationship, so it normalized my experience in a lot of ways, and it only further distanced, I think, other people. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do, even today.
0: Are there any characters that, like that? Now, you, if somebody asks you like to compare yourself to a fictional character, are there any that you're like, I'm like that, you know, queer or otherwise, but like fictional characters that that have just resonated with you, that I identify with.
1: The comic character Daredevil,
0: oh wow, tell me more about that like where when did you start reading those and or watching the movies or I've been reading you...
1: comic books since I was a kid. Um, okay. So yeah, in lieu of TV, uh, I was given subscriptions to comic books and so I had Spider-Man, I had the Fantastic Four, The Incredible Hulk, I had the Transformers series, and <clears throat> Daredevil um, didn't wasn't kind of publicly identified as a gay comic character until, I don't know, until more recently, not, not during, not during my childhood for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but just everything, everything about, um, his, his kind of like, he was kind of like a justice crusader who really hadn't had no fear. Uh, and I feel like most of my personal life as an adult, after I came out in a number of the life circumstances I went through, I definitely am a person who lives without fear and has zero fucks to give about people who don't like that. And so the more you learn about characters, they are, they're very complex. Uh, in a lot of cases, there's um, really interesting stories, even if they're fictitious, right. Being bit by a radioactive spider, or um, you know, being subjected to some sort of top secret lab, you know, mishap that, you know, forever changes your DNA, whatever the circumstances are that turned Ordinary people into superheroes or supervillains. In some cases, um, the there, there's kind of these under underlying characteristics about them that were part of who they were prior to their superhero power acquisition or status. In some, in many of these stories, uh, but become accentuated with it. And I think in my life, I was always somebody who was willing to test limits and to um, who just very fiercely would stand up for anybody who I thought was being, you know, um, unfairly or inappropriately criticized or ridiculed or demeaned. And I've never shied away from stepping into situations like that. And I've never felt like there was something I couldn't do. And if you just kind of look at like how I live my life, it's definitely not, you know, jumping off of buildings and and racing through fire necessarily. But like I take a month off every year and I do a 400 mile solo hike through the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Most people wouldn't do that. I'd go skydiving out of planes. Most people wouldn't do that. I shark dive. Most people wouldn't do that. Um, I kind of am just like, I have one life to live. And, you know, if my if my card gets pulled, it gets pulled. But, like, I'm going to enjoy my life until the end. And in the meantime, I'm going to do good, do no harm to other people. And if other people try to harm the people around me, well, fuck them. So I kind of, I, yeah, I like that character. I would say I don't think there's, everything is congruent between Daredevil and myself, but I definitely think that I line up with that character in some ways.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that um, it was a like meaningful character, particularly after your experiences and challenges and coming out. Did did you mm-hmm. have like a, a rough coming out process?
1: I did. I had a really bad, rough coming, really rough coming out process. Um, my family was not ready for that, even though I think they knew most of my life. Um, I-, I think there were signs. I mean, <laughs> when I was in first grade. I wrote another boy's name in a heart on a spelling test. Mm -hmm. And the teacher gave the spelling test to the principal. It was a Catholic elementary school. And they called my parents in. And there was a whole sit down with me about how it was inappropriate for boys to write other boys' names in hearts Mm -hmm. um, and that we don't show love that way for other boys. And my whole childhood and adolescence was full of things like that. Yet for somehow, for some reason, when I came out, it was earth shattering to my parents and they did not respond well. And um, I went through a lot of housing instability. Um, I spent some time in the LA County area, bouncing between couch surfing, my car. I lived in a boarding house. Um, I worked multiple jobs, made almost no money. I had a really rough early 20s, Um, but I definitely figured it out for myself in my own way not without mistakes or you know challenges but definitely figured it out for myself and I think it was that process of going through all of that all of the things that I went through I think that process kind of just like put me into the fire and I came out very solid steel like there's no there's no person who's going to do something to me or take something from me that I don't voluntarily give them myself so yeah, I kind of, um, I can be a little rough around the edges. I think some people would say because I don't really entertain stupidity very well. And I'm not, um, I'm not one of these people who sugarcoats or puts butter on things that don't Mm -hmm. belong there.
0: One of the, um, you you know, you mentioned like shark diving and skydiving and, um, going hiking by yourself. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the, um, I don't know the, the one of the things that you've done and accomplished that, uh, strikes me as being a particularly risky move is running for office, like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, making yourself so incredibly vulnerable, uh, to, to the approval of others. But it also sounds like that's, that's something that, um, you know, like other, other people's approval emotionally doesn't matter to you, but, uh, or as much as it might to other people, but then, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big career move and you're just putting yourself out there in a way that's, um. Mm-hmm. Very unusual. What what led to you um, running for office?
1: I didn't think that people who were in elected office represented people like me very well. I felt that there are, and I still feel this way, there are two types of people who are in elected office, politicians and leaders. And politicians are the people who tell you all the things that you want to hear and have actual no actual plans to deliver those things, um, aren't too concerned about those things if they come into conflict with their ability to retain Office, you know, positions or retain, retain office, stay elected, Mm -hmm. Um, and so they they make votes based on what's the most um, expedient thing for them and their ability to retain decision making power. And I think that that's just such a fucking waste of time. Like, what is the point of being in office if you aren't going to actually do the things that you committed to do, and you aren't going to take on the challenges of addressing? community and educating community and bringing community along and working through, um, problem solving for really important community challenges. And so I, you know, one of the things that makes being my, my tenure in office, a lot of other elected people, candidates call me and always want, you know, advice from me. They're like, you're getting all these things done. How do you do it? And my answer is, cause I don't give a fuck if I get reelected. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not like, I have a whole other, I have a full-time job. I have a career. I have other things I would do with my life. I'm doing this because I really care about my community. And I believe there are a lot of people who live in our communities today who are invisible to the people who are supposedly serving these communities in elected office. And I just felt as a young queer person, there were no services for people like me. There was no supports for people like me. There were, I, I felt extremely invisible. And you don't have to be gay to be invisible immigrants are invisible people who speak english as a second language working people are invisible um, the list goes on and we have an entire economies and societies that function around the work of these these types of people and the people in power often are so attenuated or disconnected from those real life experiences of folks and i'm somebody who has had very real life experience with many of those issues And so for me, serving, even in my city, serving is about creating an inclusive space where everybody is visible and everybody belongs. And yeah, I have people who, detractors, people who don't like me. There are certain people who go out of their way to try and make me miserable. And I think in the process, they make themselves miserable because they don't have any power over me because I'm not seeking their approval. I'm not worried about whether I will even run again in two years for a third term or if I do run and I lose, like my life doesn't end if I lose, if I run and lose, if I choose to do that, like my life doesn't end. I will have served with integrity, delivered on the things I promised people I would deliver on and upheld the values I said I would, I would keep. So for me, um, you know, I I got involved mostly because a a city council member heard me speak up at a public meeting about an affordable housing building uh, after a bunch of old, crusty homeowners said, you know, what kind of person is going to be moving into this affordable housing building? And I got up to the microphone. And I said, I would, I would live there. Shame on you for thinking that you can other me like that. And so, and the, and the council member was just like, I need to put you on a committee. And that's how it all began. I mean, for me, it's how it all began. I wasn't seeking it out, but you know, I also believe that public service is a really serious responsibility and we have unreasonable expectations of public servants. We want them to do it at no cost. We want them to do everything at no cost. We want them to solve problems yesterday. Um, And we don't actually give ourselves the time and space and build the community we need to solve problems thoughtfully, um, correctly, and bring everybody along. And so I really lean in in my city and commit to that. And the truth is that over the six years I've been in office, I went from getting 30 to 40% of my emails being nasty grams from people who were mad at the city for, about something. I'm at like 99% of my emails are positive emails thanking me for how I serve, how I lead and what the city is doing. So it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process, but I, um, I lean into my identity. I am very transparent about my former housing status. I'm very transparent about Um, my experiences as an LGBT person, I'm very transparent about my economic struggles as a young person. Um, and I lean into all those things to ensure that other people know I see them and that I, I understand what their issues are and that they're not going to get left behind in the decisions we make.
0: Yeah. You know, something that, um, you said on Twitter a while ago, I I can't remember exactly what the conversation was. I think it was something about like accessible bike, accessible infrastructure, um, there's some question about like, well, what if people don't, you've made a decision, people, somebody said, what if people don't like what you did? Like, why, why, how could you do this without doing a study to find out what they want? And your response was something along the lines of, uh, then they can vote for someone else next time. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. People, people, people create these processes that don't need to be the way they are. So the decision, the, the tweet you're citing is um, in, in March or April. I was walking to a bus stop and on the other side of the street, there was a bus stop. There's an old man, African-American gentleman with a cane and a grocery bag, and he was leaning on a city trash can at the bus stop with his cane. And I looked at him and I stopped and I thought to myself, why isn't there a a bus bench there? Why doesn't this man have a place to sit? And so I, I took a photo of it and I tweeted, I said, I see this, this is a policy failure. This man should not be leaning on a trash can. I said, I see you, sir, and I'm going to fix the problem. And a lot of people kind of derided it at first, like, oh, okay, yeah, blah, 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 you know, whatever. Um, But people who know me, especially, there's a lot of people who follow me at this point, people who know me know that if I say I'm going to fix something, I'm going to fix it. And I went to the next transportation committee in the city, which I sit on, and I said, why don't we have, I want to know how many bus stops we have that do not have seating. And I want to know why. And they came back and they said, there's a, just under 50 of the bus stops in the city do not have a bus bench of any kind. And the reason is various depending on each of these sites. And I said, OK, I'd like you to find a cost effective way to put a bus bench at every spot. And, you know, that pushed on the city process, which is, well, this is, you know, there's all this other list of bigger, sexier projects. I was like, listen, bus benches aren't sexy. Nobody's going to write me a thank you letter about it, probably. But that's not the reason why we're going to do do this over these other things that are, you know, politically favored things. Like we're going to build a brand new park and playground. Those are the things that people love like bus benches. Nobody's calling you about, but there's people standing there or not taking the bus because of it. So the city staff did the homework and the research. I sent them several options. I crowdsourced from online. I said, do people have suggestions for great seating options? All kinds of people who follow me on Twitter are transportation oriented, and they sent me a whole bunch of ideas. I went through them. I sat down with our staff. We found one that between cost and labor, if we bulk bought them, was an actual doable project. So it came back to the transportation committee about a month and a half ago, I guess. And staff said, we are moving forward with a contract to purchase 50 sets of these this type of um, bus bench seat, and we are going to retrofit and install them at all 50 of these stops before the end of the year. And so I posted that on Twitter and people lost their minds. They were like, in, in a good way, they were, they were, they were like, I can't believe this just, you just did this. And I'm like, isn't that what the function of government is supposed to be to solve the problems? And somebody kind of jokingly said, well, why didn't you do spend six to 12 months studying it and all this money? And that's, that's the problem with cities. Like it's not that you can't or shouldn't study things, but we study things to death. We study them to the point of paralysis where we don't actually solve anyone's problems. And there's a balance to be had, right? Like studying, you know, studying a building that's going to have significant environmental impacts. Sure. Let's spend a little more time with it. Studying which type of bus bench to put on a sidewalk. No, I'm sorry. This can just be done. It does not require us to spend a year and a half doing it. Like I won't name the city, but there's a nearby city that's studying which type of trash can to put out on all of its street corners. Like and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars doing a research study about trash cans. Maybe you should just put trash cans out there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So yeah. that's that's my style of leading is is understanding the balance between and, and again, why I ran is because I think that there's a balance between getting shit done and understanding which are the things that need more community process in time, but balancing that again against getting shit done
0: yeah you know what you're describing um does remind me very much uh i'm not saying like you're taking all your leadership cues from daredevil but <laughs> um <laughs> the uh you know the the spirit of like i see somebody in trouble or i see a need and i'm gonna get involved gonna go do uh, it yeah yeah <laughs> not for me not for my career uh but you know I'm, I'm in a position where i can so why wouldn't i right do you have uh projects like on the horizon like a, a dream project um that's like your you know, I don't know, like on your wish list.
1: Oh my god, I have so many projects. Um Yeah, we just we just I, I had three and one of them just opened last year, which was our brand new bicycle pedestrian bridge. Mm-hmm. Um there's uh there's a greenway, bicycle greenway connected to it that is almost finished, will be finished next year. Um there's a railroad safety project that would again, not sexy things, but would actually put all kinds of double armed gates and fences and safety apparatus at all of our at-grade crossings um, for streets in in our city. We got a state grant from that I've been pushing for a number of years now. The city has wanted it for a long time. It will allow us to create federal railroad quiet zones so the trains don't have to blow their horns through the middle of town. So it'll create a huge livability increase for us. Um, That project is in construction. I think my dream project is the entire redesign of 40th Street, which is a massive um, arterial corridor. It has five lanes of traffic and a parking lane, and the council um, approved my request to eliminate all of the parking spaces, turn it into a dual direction bicycle track with protected intersections, remove one traffic lane in each direction, and turn it into a bus only lane with bus islands, um, and reduce the actual car lanes down to two with a turn lane. And so that project is about $20 million. We have about six six to eight of it, I think, at this point. Um, and, am uh, just working really hard to try and get some of our state legislators to, uh, buy into the idea of having a city with really, truly multimodal safe options for people to come to their jobs and their homes and connect to the Bay trail. So that project is one I really want to see through and I'm really committed to getting the money for.
0: I'm very excited to hear you say that, um, 40th street is on your radar. Uh, many years ago, I lived in San Francisco and, um, wound up um, crying in a parking lot in Emeryville because I was trying to get to Ikea and just couldn't couldn't get there. I couldn't make it happen. I could see it, but I couldn't figure out how to get there. And 40th is sort of a nexus of a lot of, um, I don't know, generations old ideas about street design. Mm.
1: 40th Street is my idea of bad street design. And uh, yes, it was a street that didn't exist until about 1991 and it was added as it is as part of that shopping center project, the East Bay Bridge Shopping Center. So when the Home Depot and the the Target was used to be a Kmart and the Best Buy, all that was built, um, one of the things that the developer agreed to do was to build 40th Street and the little bridge that connects it to Shell Mon, where the IKEA is. And it is over, um, over-subscribed to cars and it needs to be multimodal and- really reflect the diversity of transportation options people want to use and connect people to the Bay Trail and all of the other great outdoor amenities we're building in Emeryville. And so uh, I'm really grateful that the council was 5-0 in supporting the 40th Street redesign plan. It's uh, very dear to my heart and I'm hope I live just off of 40th Street. So I'm very um, hopeful that before my time in office ends, that we'll be able to have it under construction.
0: That's really exciting news as, as someone who was uh, once traumatized by 40. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do with like all this stuff? Like, I, I'm sure it's very busy, keeps you um, just on your toes constantly. What do you do to get away and relax and um, do something for yourself?
1: Mm, so I do, I, ha- I have, uh, I have a couple of things. My biggest thing that I do is I go outside. My big, my big message to everybody is if you want to find inner peace and happiness and restore yourself There's no alternative to nature. Um, Science shows that if you spend as little as 20 minutes a day just sitting outside in a park space surrounded by trees, that it creates better, healthier, lower baselines for all of the brain and stress and heart rate functions that keep us healthy. Um, So nature is a natural healer for people. Um, I access nature every day. I take my dog on a five, six-mile walk every morning on the Bay Trail. I really just begin my day connected with you know, nature as much as I can. And then when I am stressed out or have a particularly hard day, I make sure I give myself time in the evening to just go sit in a park. And then when I take my trips or vacations, they're almost all connected with nature. And uh, if they're not exclusively connected with nature, they're in places where I can walk or bike everywhere so that I have the opportunity to really just feel connected to the community I'm in. Because I think being indoors or being in a vehicle all day is uh, really. Uh, punitive to our health. It really cuts us off from each other and from the things that restore our well being. When I can't go outside because the weather is maybe really inclement, um, a guilty pleasure of mine, because um, you haven't asked me necessarily about movies, so I'm going to lead you to that. Mm-hmm. Um, a guilty pleasure of mine is I absolutely love animated movies. Um, I don't really, I haven't been to a theater in a very long time. I don't really have like a movie. I'm not a, an aficionado necessarily, but I love Disney and Pixar animated movies and I cannot hide that from anyone. Anyone who knows me knows that I think they're the best thing in the world. And to me, there's something very joyful and, and relaxing about them. And so I, I would rather not watch a heavy movie or I hate rom-coms and I don't need to have a horror movie every day. So for me, I think um, animated films are also just kind of a lighthearted way for me to disconnect at the end of a day.
0: Which ones like if you were to sit down like and reach to the, I don't know, the shelf or on- mm-hmm. streaming or whatever, like what do you have? Like your go-to favorites?
1: I do. I have, I've got a couple. Um, Coco is by far my favorite. Mm-hmm. Coco is one of the best movies that has ever been made. Um, that movie can make me laugh. It can make me cry. It can give me all kinds of feels. And I really love it. And it's just so educational and it's very uplifting, um, of, Culture, and it, I think it's just a, a missing piece for a long time in animated film, uh, was just really heteronormative and white centric. And I think that this is a really good change for animated films. Um, in terms of old films, I always really, really loved um, The Sword and the Stone and Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. And so it is not at all uncommon for me to pull out Disney's Robin Hood from, you know, 50 years ago and and watch it. And I can read, recite every line from that movie. And it's, it's kind of mind numbing and innocent and, and fun. And uh, I just enjoy it. I don't, I can't explain why.
0: That was a hundred percent. That was my go-to as a kid. Um, often fast forwarding the love song in the middle. Cause that, it didn't really speak to me, <laughs> but that, that tournament, I like, I look forward to that tournament scene in yep. Robin Hood. It's so good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is. It's 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 one of the best scenes, and and when Clucky gets that football, man, and she goes downfield. Just get the, out of her fucking way, man. Get out of her way.
0: <laughs> and he's uh, the voice actor. I've forgotten his name now. The voice actor who played Robin Hood in that movie is gay. So, uh, I oh just, really? I didn't know uh, that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I wish I could remember his name. He was uh, also in an episode of, um, of Frasier. But uh, oh, he's
1: very sexy. I'll tell you, <laughs> very <laughs> sexy voice. That fox, I would. I'll tell you right now, that was a very sexy fox. So.
0: Yeah. There's that, you know, it's, it's the part that I just, that I fast forward through when they're like him and Maid Marian are like gazing into the, each other's eyes and like, they're blinking slowly. It's, um, it is a very romantic shot. Uh, it's like tracking in on Robin's like his deep brown eyes there. Yep. Uh, (laughs) awesome. And you know, and you've got like Pixar, you've got like those folks, uh, they're, they're your neighbors. They're, they're right there. Right right across the
1: street from city hall. Yep. My, my office looks right out at Pixar animation studios and I've, been their guest on a number of occasions for various events and things. Um,
0: I saw that they made you a sash.
1: Oh oh, yeah. So in 2018, they have, they have a Halloween contest. In fact, it'll be coming up here shortly. Um, They have a Halloween contest and the guy who Mike Fredrickson, who puts the Halloween contest on or did at least up until COVID um, every year, he comes up with a different grand prize. So there's always like three runner up prizes and a grand prize. And they go kind of like bonkers on these prizes. So one year it was like, they made a bust an academy award bust of the winner and put it in their case with <laughs> their, their actual awards, you know, um, or their, their Oscars, whatever the, whatever the award is that they get. Um, they, they, they did, they did different things. So one year he calls me and he's like, I'd like you to be, I have this idea. And he's like, you're kind of a character yourself. I'd like you to be the, the grand judge for this year's contest. And he's like, I want to come up with some idea for you. Can you come over to the studios and meet with some of my team? So I come over, he's walking me around, introducing me, showing me the layout of some of the venue for what the event's going to be. He's introducing me to people and he's like, this is John Bowders. He's the mayor of Emeryville. Every single person goes, wait, are you, are you the actual mayor of Emeryville? <laughs> Every single person to a T it's a common thing I get. And I said, yeah, yes, I am. <clears throat> so the thing we came up with was that I was going to sit in this side room where they wouldn't be able to see me. I was going to watch the whole contest because all this 1300 staff come out and they watch all the contestants. And I was going to text Mike which one I wanted to be the winner. And I was able to get IKEA to give me eight of its employees in their yellow and blue candy stripe outfits with bugles. (laughs) And um, the night before on the city council agenda, I passed on the consent calendar a special proclamation that's completely ridiculous about Pixar. It's like full of just like jokes about Pixar. Um, And we printed it on a giant parchment the size of an office wall and then put it on a board and like formally these people can make anything i'm tell you right now put it all together um, we brought the Emeryville flag, we brought Swedish flags. And when they said he's, he announced, and now to give the grand prize, John Bowder is the actual mayor of Emeryville. So they made me a sash that says the actual mayor of Emeryville, <laughs> the bugles blare, the doors open, all these Ikea people march out with Swedish flags. And behind them, I walk, walk out like a third world dictator with uh-huh. like the sash, right? <laughs> and behind me is this giant proclamation that three people are carrying on a giant board. Um, and we walk up on stage. I announce who the winner is. She comes up. They give me a big quill. I sign my name on it. Like people thought, they were like, "This cannot possibly be real." Um, and they installed it in her office. Um, so they are—they are a hoot. They are, and the council members came and they stood on the balcony in the back, dressed as the handsmaids from *The Handmaid's Tale*. Oh like it was—it was the fucking shit. Like we had the best time ever. Uh, we are a very small city that people think is just the IKEA and the shopping center, but you mm-hmm. are driving by a lot of fun and missing it every day. I guarantee you.
0: Yeah, it's um, it, it's such a shame that like people can get like I'd say this is somebody who lived in San Francisco for ten years. It, it's very easy just to be like, oh, that's the city, and everything in the in the East Bay is like <laughs> another country. But mm-hmm. um, you know, at, around the time that I was I was leaving for Seattle, uh, I was really appreciating like, oh, there's a lot. There's a, just so much art and culture and, and adventure happening there. Uh, and it sounds like you're, you're really, you're, you're making the most of it.
1: We we do. We make the most of all, but we, we punch way above our weight class. We have a lot of fun. I, and, and I kind of, I really enjoy comedy. And so I don't miss a beat when I go to any of these places where I'm asked to speak. And somebody's like, Emeryville has all this housing. You know, I only thought Emeryville was the Ikea. And I go, Oh, it is. And he's like, Oh, well, like where do the people live? I said, well, I, I live in the bedroom section and the vice mm-hmm. mayor lives down in lighting and like, and the people just start laughing. Cause I'm like, like we, we are regular people. This is a town run by regular people who have a sense of humor, who believe the function of government is to relate to other people. We have no desire to be Oakland or Berkeley or San Francisco, nothing against any of those fine cities, but like we have no desire to be anybody, but our unique selves. And that's the best part about living there and being the mayor of that town.
0: Well, that's awesome. So, if folks want to um, follow you online and see what you're working on, uh, where should they go?
1: Well, they, they can follow on Twitter if they have Twitter. It's just, I'm just at John Bowders. Um, the city of Emeryville, you can sign up for information about Emeryville on our, our city website. Um, I do have a webpage which is broken at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. I, don't, I need to fix a webhook, apparently. It's uh, johnbowders.net. And we put information about community events, updates on the projects being built in our city, stuff like that. Um, So yeah, you you can typically find me on a bicycle or on a bike path in the city. It's not at all uncommon to see me out with my dog and talking to a neighbor in the city on a given morning.
0: Fantastic. Well, John, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It was a great time. Thanks to Mayor John Bowders for joining me, and thanks to you for listening. And thanks to everybody who makes The Sewers of Paris possible on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash Baum to support the show and get backer rewards. Check out my upcoming book, Hi Honey, I'm Homo, for a history of queer characters on American sitcoms. That's at gaysitcoms.com. Visit my YouTube channel for stories about pop culture at youtube.com slash Baum, And keep up with more of my projects through my weekly newsletter. You can sign up for that at MattBaum.com. The theme song for The Sewers of Paris is Parisian from filmmusic.io by Kevin MacLeod and CompTec.com. Lessons creative Commons by attribution4.0. And until next time, croissant.